Hello, I'm Stephen, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Welcome, my countercultural friends, to another tale from the underground, from the other side. If you're interested in all that we do, you can check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. Got some interesting events coming up and all sorts of other goodies in 2024. In our recent survey about what our countercultural community likes to listen to, right up there at the top was all testimonies and stories from the 1960s and 70s. So as we've been jumping around a little recently in all sorts of strange other subjects, I thought it might be quite good to return to the heart, as it were, of the counterculture for this episode. And as very few people alive could do it better than my guest today. But before I come to that, I wanted to say thanks to Nigel. He suggested a while back, actually, now that we could do a programme about Here and Now or Gong, Steve Hillage and Penny Rumbo. That's a great idea. Judy suggested the artist, journalist and countercultural figure Caroline Kuhn. That's interesting. I have been trying to get Caroline for some time. I'm very keen to record her stories, but she has proved elusive. Let's put it that way. We shall keep trying. James suggested Eric Burden and the Animals. Another very interesting story. Eric Burden's life is particularly interesting. I'm going to work on that one too. If you've got any suggestions, do write to us and let us know. It's always good to hear from friends. But now, back to today, or should I say, back to the 60s. He wrote a book called In the 60s, and then one called In the 70s, and he's hard at work on one called In the 80s. He is and was right at the heart of the counterculture in many roles, and the role that he's become most famous for is a writer, a biographer. He's written biographies with and of Paul McCartney, Frank Zappa, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg. He's written books about Jack Kerouac, The Beat Hotel, Charles Bukowski, David Bowie, Bob Dylan. He's written books on the greatest album covers of all time. He's written books, of course, on the beats, a favourite subject, and hippie, and of course, the epic world which I love, which is London Calling, a story of the counterculture in this city. And boy, did he live it, right at the heart of it. Meeting Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, becoming friends of both of them, setting up the Indica bookshop and gallery where John Lennon met Yoko Ono, hanging out with the Beatles and Jane Asher, Setting up International Times, the Bible of the Underground, involved in the UFO Club, the Poetry Olympics at the Albert Hall, the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, all sorts of other stuff. And we hear about Paul McCartney's first hash brownie. He's our old friend, coming back to the Bureau of West Culture for a second, and I hope not the last time. Of course, he is Barry Miles, known affectionately to his friends as Miles. Welcome, Miles, back to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you. Does anybody call you Barry at all? Um, uh, people who don't know me. And it was purely accidental. Uh, when I went to art college, there was a, a school, a college magazine, and uh, six of us worked on it, and three of us were called Barry. So I just became Miles, and, um, and it stuck. And it is a sort of first name as well, isn't it, Miles? So you could be called, I mean, for all we know, we could be Miles Barry. You could. Like, like John Barry and Miles. Like, yes, that's true. That's true. Or Miles Davis. <laughs> uh, Miles, um, <laughs> in the intro there, I did list a, just a few of the over 70 books that you've published. Right at the centre uh, of that bibliography is the counterculture. We're going to try and get through your life in the counterculture in less than 60 minutes. Okay. But I wanted just to take you back because I thought, what's the first book that Mars published? And certainly it wasn't the first book that you published, but you described it as the first real book that you published, which was your biography of Ginsburg. Yeah. I thought, we'll yeah. come back to that. But in fact, your publication record goes back to much earlier, to 1956, when you published something called The Old Canal. <laughs> in the magazine of Siren Sister Grammar School uh, of summer of 1956 by B. Miles from Form 2B. 2B. I love it. I just remember the publication of <laughs> The Old Canal. 
Yes, I mean, it was the school magazine, and I was encouraged by my English teacher to, to write something for it. And it was about uh, the Thames and Severn Canal, um, which had been abandoned, I think, before the war. But it was still there, and the, the lock lock gates were all overgrown. And it was a very, uh, there, there was a, an atmosphere um, mm. surrounding it that I tried to describe. But uh, what the piece was like, I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I obviously haven't seen it for right. 50, 60 years. Right. But when, when my archives went to the British Library, there was, right. it, it went there. So you were a schoolboy mm. um, in Sirencester, to which for anybody who doesn't know is in, in Gloucestershire, I guess. It is uh, indeed. Yeah, in the west yes. of England. Quite, quite a nice posh town, isn't it, Sirencester? Well, we came, we were out in the country uh, next okay. to a farm. Right. Um, it was a sort of 20-minute walk into town. Uh, I mean, Sirencester was very much divided right down the middle by, um, uh, there was the Bathurst family who owned um, Sirencester Great Park, which literally is like a sort of slice of cake that cuts right into the centre, um, right up to the, the central church. So there's no way of actually walking around Sirencester. So there, there's that whole uh, hunt and shoot and fishing kind yeah. of gang, you know, who, then there were the sort of rural proletariat like me. Really. The rural proletariat. <laughs> what sort of significance to me is that was the beginning, in a way, wasn't it, of your, I guess. Pub, of your route of publication. And uh, jumping on to 1960, you edited and contributed something called The Cheltenham. And in it, and I thought this might be quite significant, you published two poems, one of which was called A Cut-Up. Oh, God, really? And I thought... Really? Hmm. A Cut-Up? Yeah, you called it A Cut-Up, and I thought... Well, that was quick, wasn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, cut-ups were only invented just about then. <laughs> so, well, what is a cut-up, for anybody who doesn't know? It's quite significant it was, this, this story. is something that um, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen popularised uh, mm. in a book called Minutes to Go, which um, one, one day in 1958, uh, Brian Geisen, who was a, an artist, was um, cutting mounts for his drawings um, with a Stanley knife um, on a big pile of newspapers. And he cut through the newspapers, of course, with the with the knife. And then, as he was taking the the uh, the mount off, he realised uh, that you could read through these different layers of newspapers, and they made just as much sense, if not more sense, <laughs> um, by 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 this random uh, cut up. So he he started to uh, basically slice through copies of, of Time magazine and Life and everything. And then when Burroughs came came back to the Beat Hotel, this this was in the Beat Hotel in Paris. Um, Bill immediately recognised its potential right. uh, as a literary technique and called it um, a project for disastrous success. And uh, he, of course, made it his own. And mm. um, and he realised, of course, the better the material you start with, the, the you know, the, the better the cut up. So he, you know, immediately got a hold of Rambo and uh, you know <laughs> Saint Jean Perse and T. S. Eliot's Wasteland and cut all of those up, <laughs> and uh, the results were very interesting, and published in this little book called Minutes to Go, along with Brian Geisen's permutations. And then, of course, later on. Um he started to apply the same technique with tape, didn't he? he started doing cut-ups on well, tape. Well, once, once you've done that, you can move on to mm. anything. And uh, mm. there was there were several films made by Anthony Bosch using mm. the cut-up technique. Burroughs rather disastrously, in fact, eventually applied it to people, not believing their um, normal persona, but trying to investigate who they were influenced by and uh, whatever control systems were at work uh, manipulating them, uh, which kind of alienated most of his friends. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprisingly. <laughs> um, well, we we will talk more about him because actually he was one of your friends, wasn't he? And we, yes. We, we did a little exhibition together a few years ago mm -hmm. of Burroughs in London. Right back in 1960, um, you published this poem yourself called The Cut-Up. So I think that's, even if you can't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm astonished, actually, that it was published at all because uh, I saw Burroughs and Geisen do a performance at the ICA on Dover Street but um, I was then only, what, 17 or 18 or something, and uh, far too shy to approach these uh, terrifying avant-garde figures. <laughs> so it wasn't until about a few years later, anyway, that I that I met them. Do you remember the impact that had on you at Dover Street then, actually seeing them perform? Oh, yes. I mean, because as an art student, I'd, I'd studied uh, Dada and, and surrealism and everything, and... Um, I was very conscious of how wonderful it must have been to be at the Cabaret Voltaire, for instance, in Zurich, and see the beginnings of, of Dada. And to me, this this was uh, this was an amazing new approach to to literature, because after all, I mean, I'd gone to uh, Sirencester Grammar School, where the most recent thing we read, I think, was um, 
uh, Siegfried Sassoon's Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man. You know, I mean, so no, <laughs> absolutely no modern literature at all had, had ever. Uh, here is people doing crazy stuff. I mean, really wonderful. I loved it. By 1963, when you were at Gloucestershire College of Art, published something called How to Undress a Painting, which is a great title. I don't even remember that, <laughs> but uh, that's great. <laughs> was it any good? <laughs> I don't know how to read it. You know, it was art school. You mm. know, we were all mm. pretentious bastards, Pretent- you know, <laughs> strutting about, you know, thinking we knew everything. But we were just teenagers. You know, I was only 16 when I went to work college. Right. You know, I knew nothing about anything. That's what teenagers are like. You know, we, we make big manifestos and proclamations. Mm. But I feel like there's a sort of little signpost along the way because also I remember you told me before once that actually you had the sort of courage to actually write to one of your heroes and get a response, didn't you? Mm. I wrote to Ferlinghetti, yes, mm. yes, in uh, City Lights because I was editing a little uh, college magazine at the York College. And I wanted to see if he would send us some poems. And indeed, none of the books had been published in Britain, so that was a perfectly reasonable thing. And we maintained a small correspondence. He, he was very generous, was Lawrence. Uh, and then later on, I met him, of course, in 1965, when he came to, to London and was at the Albert Hall. And in fact, he stayed with me for a week or so. And I got to know him quite well. Right, so this is Lawrence Ferlinghetti, beat poet, yeah. friend of Ginsburg yes, and, yes, the, the, and Kerouac, etc. He published Howell by Ginsburg, mm. and, and that made the book famous because it was busted from obscenity and his bookshop City Lights became the the main publisher for the Beat Generation um, he, he published everybody from Gary Snyder to mm. Kerouac to Ginsburg of course um, Bob Kaufman I mean loads and loads of people because that also became a theme later didn't it which I remember you told me when you were at IT International Times you know that there was this kind of unspoken agreement with all the kind of independent free press across the West that Mm. you could reprint each other's... Well, uh, there was a conference. Basically, it was the establishment of the Underground Press Syndicate. Right. And the the principles of that were that if you were a member of, uh, of the UPS, you could reprint from any other UPS publication. So, um... If we did an interview or an article that somebody else particularly liked, they could just use it. They didn't have to go through all the hassle of, of writing a letter and or trying to get through on the phone or something. Really, really all these, these little newspapers that were done for, you know, on no money at all uh, had access to a huge pool of material, which grew very big in the end. I mean, literally hundreds of them, actually, to, by the end of the 60s and early 70s. The principle being um, that we were doing this to get the information out. Right. Not to make money or anything. Not to make money. Just to sort of backpedal a bit to you then. So you're at Gloucester College of Art and then you come to London. So just walk us through that, why you decided to come here. After my four years of art Mm. college. And I have a degree in painting. It's about the most useless degree you can (laughs) get, you know. Um, So um, (laughs) I came out to London. I did a year at the University of London uh, and, um, and got a teaching degree. So uh, I could teach up to and including art college. I'd always wanted to get to. I'm not a country person. I, know, I don't like the country. I, I'm an urban, as urban as you could. Deep in the heart, Fitzroy of you to this day, right? When you came, just gives a little picture of the London at the time. When I first came to London, I, I hitchhiked around um, the south coast with a friend of mine from school, uh, with a, literally with a copy of On the Road in our pocket, and slept in haystacks and barns. And stuff. we got to London, and I. I knew that Soho was supposed to be the cool place to hang out. Hung out at the Partisan, which was a, a coffee shop where folk singers and uh, radical um, activists, there were people playing chess, men with beards, coffee in glass cups and mm-hmm. with brown sugar. I mean, you can't imagine how amazing this was. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of skiffle playing in the background? A bit of skiffle and folk singers who would sing with a finger in their ear. Right. <laughs> I've never been quite sure why they do that, but a lot of them used to do it. And then, of course, that closed and we were, we realised, <laughs> where are we going to sleep? But you can't really sleep rough in the middle of Soho. Anyway, we, and also we hadn't eaten. And there used to be a, an Italian restaurant on Carlisle Street just, just off... Uh, Soho Square, La Rocca, I think it was. We went in there to, to and had a cheap meal because in those days you could have a, a, a decent spaghetti bolognese for about one and threepence. Fifteen yeah, p or something. Yeah. About fifteen p. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the wait the waitress took a shine to us. I don't think it was a, any sexual thing. If it was, that they didn't make that. I mean, I'd never even heard of homosexuality at that point. And they let us sleep in the basement. So we unrolled our. Um, our sleeping bags in the basement of, of La Rocca. And so my first night in, in London was spent just off Soho Square. So to me, that's always been the centre of, right. of, of the world, you know, or at least the, the, the British world. I always wanted to live as close as possible to mm. there. And indeed, I'm about 10 minutes walk away at the moment and have been for 
I think, 1963, I first moved into the building. In 64. You've been in your building since 64? Yeah. Wow, okay. So when you came back, as it were, professionally, um, when you didn't need to sleep on the floor in the basement of the rocker? By then, I I had a a girlfriend, and we had to go to Scotland to get married because her parents wouldn't let us live together. Got married by people who were so far outside normal society, they insisted on using their own ink that they'd made to sign the (laughs) registry. One was in full Highland gear, you know, complete right. with a claymore and a dirk and all the rest of it, uh, and very long hair, uh, which in those days was almost completely unknown. And another one who was known as the rubber man, who had about uh, three metres of rubber piping wrapped around him. And he would stick stick his little mouthpiece in one end and um, and, and a sibsy in the other, and he would fire up a, you know some hash, and then he would huff and huff and puff for ages, and eventually... The, the smoke would go round and round and get nice and cool. And it would suddenly hit him, though, and he would kind of explode in a great <laughs> cloud of smoke and sort of virtually fall over. Um, again, it was all incredibly impressive to a, to a mm. teenager like me. And I thought, this is the life, you know. This is a, much better than all these guys who are talking about fox hunting all the time. Sure, and, uh, sure. You know. Of course, Soho at the time, um, however glamorous it might appear to a teenager, it was a very different place than it is now. It was now, a right? seedy as hell. I mean, mm. there were a lot of strip clubs and... Mm. Um, basically an Italian neighborhood still. So so a a large percentage of the population ran proper shops. I mean, in those days, there were, I think, six butchers down uh, Old Compton Street alone, as well as uh, Fens that dealt in nothing but game. There was uh, La Roche, who who sold nothing but French vegetables that came over three times a week. Um, So it was like being on the continent, really, Mm -hmm. rather than in in Britain. A kind of a community that you don't normally find in Britain, I think. I didn't realise that at the time, but uh, Mm -hmm. people were so friendly and nice. And and they clearly had a bad time during the war, which wasn't that much earlier, after all. And there were a lot of guys around who were shell-shocked or crazy or, you know, just just suffering from whatever horrors they'd seen during World War II. And, of course, there were lots of bomb sites in those right. days, you know. And then there were all the uh, the prostitutes and people. A bit later on, in 1965, I was uh, I used to work at Joseph Poole, my first bookshop job. And one of the guys there doubled up as a, a stage manager at one of the strip clubs, the Phoenix, on Old Compton. And when he went on holiday, I took over his job for a week. That really brought home the... The grim reality, should we say, of Soho, because these girls were working in about five different uh, strip clubs. Some of them had kids, you know, that when they were stripping, the girls backstage would look after them. They'd all run away from home. They all came from really dysfunctional families. They, a lot of them had kind of guys who were not really pimps, but just sort of living off of them. And then, and then one of them, a week after I'd done that, uh, actually leapt out of the top window of the building and killed herself. I mean, it was just, you know, th- that's what it was really like. It wasn't like all the glamorous magazines mm. and shit, you know. Mm. So, on the other hand, uh, um, there was a community and, uh, and a comradeship in Soho that I've always treasured, really, you know. I mean, most of them are now dead, of course, but mm. it was good. Tell us about the journey to Better Books and what Better Books was, actually, because this is another milestone, isn't it, along the way for you? Yes, well, I was. Um, th- there was this bookshop called Better Books that Tony Godwin had started in 1947, I think, which was very much uh, the centre for the angry young men, you know, uh, Osborne and, and Wesker and all these people uh, who wrote social realist plays and novels mm. and so on. Tony had a, a rather idealised view of how writers and artists should be. For instance, he had some, he had little desks with typewriters in the basement that that you know, novelists or poets could, if they felt inspired, would go down and and you know the muse would would lead them and they would write a few pages or something, a two page novel or something. Well, of course, what really happened was somebody like uh, Alex Trocchi, the notorious junkie. <laughs> would go down there. And when he came up, you know, his shirt was uh, bulging with, <laughs> with books, you know, because that was, of course, where all the uh, overstock and everything was right. kept. You know, so they were getting ri- very much ripped off by, mm. by um, book thieves. Tony also, he was then the chief editor uh, at Penguin Books, work, working on uh, two jobs at once, really. So he hardly ever came into the shop. Um, and I used to hang out there a lot. And then uh, Bill Butler had been the manager of the paperback section. But his boyfriend uh, had TB, I think it was, and he, they moved to Brighton, and I just took over his job. I was still very young. I was only 23 or something, 22. Um, and I carried on the, the tradition of, of poetry readings and, and film shows and stuff. 
Um, and Ferlinghetti had already got this connection with. There was a there was a connection with Ferlinghetti. We we used to swap boxes and boxes and boxes of of penguins, and we would ship them over to uh, to City Lights in San Francisco. And City Lights books were printed in Britain, and we would just get a do a swap, and then we would have all the City Lights poetry. It wasn't wasn't all beats. Uh, it was it was a very good arrangement. And then by then, uh, I had started to meet up with the New York kind of underground scene. Um, through a woman called Betsy Klein, who came over, who was the girlfriend of um, Ken Weaver, who was the drummer with the Fugs, and Ken was um, living in in the back of the Peace Eye bookshop in on Tompkins Square in New York, and the Peace Eye was run by Ed Saunders, who was the lead singer with the Fugs, and so between the connection with those people. Uh, I started to import books from New York, which was um, all the uh, mimeograph magazines that were coming out then, Lines and Fuck You, Magazine of the Arts and Mother, and uh, filled with Beat Generation writers, and, and just in very small runs, usually mimeographed. Here is a sidebar. Mel's mentioned mimeographing. A mimeograph machine, sometimes called a stencil duplicator, was a low-cost duplicating machine that worked by forcing ink through a stencil onto paper. Mimeographs along with spirit duplicators and hectographs were common technologies for printing small quantities of documents. Stencil duplicating in its earliest form was invented in 1874, almost a century before the time we're talking about, by Eugenio de Sugato, a young Italian studying law in London. He called his device the papiograph. And his system involved writing on a sheet of varnished paper at that time with special caustic ink which ate through the varnish and paper leaving holes where the writing had been and this sheet which has now become a stencil was then placed on a blank sheet of paper and the ink rolled over it so that the ink oozed through the holes creating a duplicate on the second sheet. In 1891, David Gestetner painted his automatic cyclist style. The Gestetner machine, this features a lot in countercultural publications, basically took Zaccato's system and added a roller. So it provided for more automation, faster reproductions, since the pages could be produced and moved by rollers instead of pressing one sheet at a time. To create a stencil, again, the operator would load a stencil assemblage into a typewriter instead of paper, use a switch on the typewriter to put it in stencil mode and then when you tap the keys they would strike the stencil directly displacing the coating and making the tissue paper permeable to oil-based ink. Now early fanzines, political pamphlets and short-run lo-fi magazines and newspapers as Miles mentioned including the Soho Bibles that we've covered on this show were printed by mimeograph Augustetners the machines and supplies were widely available and inexpensive and they became an important part of countercultural spread of ideas and information. But of course in the late 60s and continuing to the 70s, photocopying gradually displaced mimeographs, gestetners, spirit duplicators and hectographs. And so we, we were the only place probably in Europe you could buy any of that stuff uh, mm. because uh, we would send not just penguins but books that anything to do with countercultural bohemian lifestyle, shall we say, or drugs or anything like that that, that Ed could sell in his bookshop. Uh, so it became a kind of centre for sort of beat and underground poetry and literature. and Yeah, and underground films, you know, and underground mm. filmmakers, Stan Brackage and all of those people. Kenneth Anger, we showed his films. And then not too long after I joined, uh, a guy called Bob Cobbing joined the stuff, who was probably a good 20 years older than me, maybe older. And he was very keen on uh, on the readings and the poetry. Uh, um, he, he had a, a, a small press of his own. It was a, a terrific centre of, of activity, actually. And then 1965, May... Somebody called Allen Ginsberg arrives in London. Indeed. And offers to give free readings everywhere, right? And he gives... Uh, well, Alan, Alan came into Better Books, and at first he thought Bob was me, uh, and then he found, you know, that I was me. Uh, and he had a letter from Ed Sanders saying, if you're in London, you know, you have to obviously look up this guy. Um, so um, we got talking, and Alan had been on a kind of a world tour, really. He First of all, he went to Cuba. Then he, he outraged them so much that they, they slung him out and put him on a a plane uh, to Czechoslovakia. I think the first plane was going to from Havana. So he hung out for a bit in, in Czechoslovakia. Um, then he went to Moscow. He was really having a good time in Czechoslovakia. So he went back and he was 
proclaimed the King of May and paraded through the streets and with the paper crown on and everything by all the students. And then at that point, the the it was still a communist country then. Um, the administration just thought, this is too much, you know, you've got to get rid of this guy. Uh, the secret police got hold of his private notebooks, which are, of course were filled with thrilling things that Alan had done with a broomstick that night or something. <laughs> Um, they had plenty of grounds to sling him out, you know. So they put him on the first plane, and that happened to be going to London. Right. Um, fortunately, though, when he was in Cuba, he'd met Tom Mashler, who was mm. the editor-in-chief at Jonathan Cape. And uh, so he got to London, called up uh, Mashler, and went to stay with him in a beautiful house. But it was up in Hampstead, which is, Alan said, it's like being out in Queens, which <laughs> it isn't, of course. But uh, when when he and I got talking in the shop... Uh, I said, well, I only live 10 minutes walk from here. And um, he came to stay for, I don't know, five weeks or something. Yeah, he was there quite a while. And and one of the first things, of course, was I asked him, you know, will you do a reading? And he said, of course. It just by word of mouth, mm. the place was absolutely packed with people, you know, with the front door open and a great crowd outside trying to hear. Being Alan, somehow or other, Alan, uh, you know, Andy Warhol was in the front row with Edie Sedgwick. Um, you had people like Donovan was there. I mean... Uh, you know, all the kind of scene going on in London at the time, Julie Felix, the folk singer, um, who Ferlinghetti, in fact, um, shortly after that had a little affair with. So it was all very, you know, incestuous and fun. <laughs> because, I mean, you were lifelong friends, right, right, up until his death. And we actually talked last time you were here, we sort of took you over to the farm and we did that whole programme about your summer on the farm. With oh, him. yes. So <laughs> we, can, we can leapfrog that. And, of course, next year we're going to be doing this Ginsburg in London exhibition and events together. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. Tell us about this thing, the International Poetry Incarnation. It's interesting as an event, but also I think we live in a time when it's difficult to imagine poetry being such a kind of radical force. That's true. That's true. But of course, this is long before the internet or or any Mm. of those things. Mm. It was at a time when when poetry really was one of the main ways that the bohemian element or or young Mm. people communicated, shall we say, sophisticated ideas or complicated ideas. Crept very much into music as well. I mean, um, the 60s was was the period when rock and roll went from being Mm. just just simple love songs and and commercial stuff right through to very complicated rock. So said usually in a very deep voice, (laughs) quotation marks around it, uh, as if it was really, you know, heavy. I don't know what really replaced poetry, but it it was enormously popular. A lot of kids going to art colleges and and universities and uh, or or musicians, I mean, they often had had poetry in, in, uh, in their pocket and poetry readings were very big. Uh, and often, often multimedia kind of things. You know, yeah, yeah. it would be new de- new departures, for instance, run by Michael Horowitz and Pete Brown. Uh, wasn't just people reading poetry. Uh, there, there were small playlets. There was a, sometimes a little film. Quite often, there was a, a, a jazz combo that would play a few numbers. You know, so it was right across the board, or maybe a folk singer or something. So it, there wasn't that kind of division in those days uh, between the different arts. And poetry was seen as one of the primary ways of expressing ideas. We had lots of poetry readings at, at Better Books. Well, Jeff Nuttall described Ginsburg reading at Better Books with you as a, the first healing wind on a very parched collective mind. <laughs> That's good. After this reading at Better Books, you make plans for this international poetry incarnation. Yes. By then, Alan was, was staying with me. So he would come in to work, as it were. The room that the reading was in was, was used just for hanging out. It had tables and chairs and a machine that dispensed uh, soup, coffee and tea, but it all came out of the same nozzle. (laughs) So it was this kind of ghastly mixture (laughs) in in these awful plastic mugs that had teeth marks in there where people had chewed on them. Um, you might get a noodle in your tea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but Alan used to so hold court back there. You know, he, he had the time of his life, all these sort of skinny English boys, you know, they'd get <laughs> chat up and everything. Anyway, he was there one day and we were talking and um, he mentioned to a group of us that uh, Ferlinghetti was um, in Paris and on his way to London. And then somebody else said that Gregory Corso was in Italy and, and on his way to London. And the Beats had never done a big reading in Britain. And uh, this, right. So the first idea was a Beat Generation reading, just the three of them. Somebody said, what's the biggest venue? I think it was Barbara Rubin. I think it was my wife, said the Albert Hall. And Barbara just stood up, walked over to the desk, got the Albert Hall on the phone and booked it for like 10 days' time. <laughs> In 10 days' time, <laughs> yes. right, OK. You know, you thought, whoa, you know, like, 
And, and it cost like £400, plus £100 an hour afterwards. My, my wage at the time was £13 a week, you know I mean? Right. this was these, these were sums which were so inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> my friend Hoppy agreed to do the publicity, you know, he took photographs of everybody who was going to read and mm. uh, we, you know, sent, managed to get them printed in the Sunday Times and places like that. But unfortunately, they kind of felt that maybe the English poets should be involved. Of course, they all wanted to be involved and m most of them had never done a reading anywhere bigger than the upstairs room in a pub, you know, um, let alone the Albert Hall. And in the end, there were 17 people on the bill, you know, and... Um, but, I mean, what a lineup! You know, You've got, you got Burroughs, Corso, Phil Filling, Well, Burroughs was only on tape. Nobody could really hear him. That was during the interval. Ginsburg, Spike Hawkins, and Michael Horowitz, you mentioned, Alexander Trockey. The, the, the great thing about that reading was that the, the audience was... was uh, Quite animated mm. and, and very much part of the reading. And mm. one or two of the boxes, for instance, the curtains were drawn, you know, and <laughs> puffs of pot were coming out. <laughs> We'd anticipated this, of course, and we had huge bunches of incense burning all over the place. There was one uh, Dutch poet, Simon Winkeroch, who wasn't reading, in fact. I don't think he was on the bill as such. Uh, but anyway, he, he'd taken a rather strong acid trip, and he, he was a very tall, tall guy, uh, the, uh, the flying Dutchman, we used to call him. <laughs> Anyway, he was charging around the hall saying, love, 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 and waving his <laughs> arms about. I mean, it, was, uh, it was that kind of thing going on. And then there was um, a uh, young woman that uh, Ronnie Lang had brought along from his uh, psychiatric institute. And uh, she danced to people's poetry, particularly Ginsberg's, in a sort of flowing white dress. She was like, mm. it was a bit disconcerting. Expressive <laughs> dance. <laughs> Expressive dancing, that's what it was. And um, there were lots of things like that went on. Yeah. And, and there were also events like... Uh, Jeff Nuttall and another artist got covered in paint and, and uh, had to be rescued because if you block all your uh, pores with paint, you can't breathe or something oh. or, and have to be you know, sent to hospital. Drown in your own yes, skin. Sort yes, of yes. Yeah. John Latham was the poet. We put John naked into Sir John Barbarolli's bathtub and poured paint over him and he was going to do something and robots were going to parade him, I think. And the robots, of course, broke down and fell over. And uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff was going on in the periphery of all of this. Right. Uh, yes. Well, Jeff Nuttall described it. The underground was suddenly there on the surface. And you described it as a sense of constituency that was never there before. All these people recognised each other and they all realised they were part of the same scene. Well, that's true. Where did I write that, I wonder? And that was true. And that was what was so great about it, was that we did. We we just realised that this is a whole group of people that had no recognition anywhere, that we had no newspapers, we had no uh, access to TV or anything. Um, and yet, it, it was it was a constituent. They didn't they didn't look like hippies yet. It was 1965. Right. Right. It was still right. short hair and ties and stuff. Yeah. You know, you might call it the birth of the British underground, of, uh, of, yeah, of, which then kind of emerged in counterculture, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a major event, wasn't it? And then only the f first of several of the kind of famous countercultural events that um, you worked on or helped about. But after Better Books, what happened next for you? What did happen? <laughs> 65. Oh, um, towards the end of 65, Better Books was going to be sold. The new owners were going to be Hatchards of Piccadilly, which is an excellent bookshop, but very straight and, mm. and associated with the publishers of the Bible, of all things. And we just thought, no way are they going to let us put on Kenneth Anger films <laughs> and uh, that kind of thing anymore. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd like to start my own bookshop. Mm. I got together uh, with a guy called John Dunbar, who had been thinking of opening an avant-garde art gallery because there were so very few of them in town, maybe three or something. And we decided to combine forces and, and have an, an, a bookshop art gallery dealing in, mostly in the avant-garde. But of course we had no money, either of us. Um, John's best friend, however, was Peter Escher, who at that point was in um, a little duo called Peter and Gordon. And they'd had some big hits, number one hits in Britain and America with World Without Love and Woman and songs like that, all of which had been written by... Paul McCartney. So we got Peter on board and um, Peter was going to finance the, the bookshop art gallery and that was terrific. Um, we, so we started a company called Mad and I started to assemble stock for the bookshop. Peter was living at home in Wimpole Street with his parents. Also living at home was his, his sister Jane Asher who was going out with Paul McCartney 
and Paul was living at home. He had the little attic room at the top next to Peter's. In the same house as, as their parents? Yes. Wow. And Jane was only about 17 or something. But um, And on her bedroom door, you know, it said Jane and sort of eight-year-old writing. You know, it was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. So, <laughs> on his bedroom door, it said Paul. It, it said Paul, but <laughs> yes, much more modern writing. I mean, what's not to like? You know, there he is. He's, he's got uh, Mrs. Asher cooking lovely food for him. <laughs> you know, he's got his girlfriend on the floor below. Cool brother in the next room. Yes, where he kept all his tape recorders and stuff. Right. Peter's room was an L-shaped room, um, panelled in Norwegian wood, as a matter of fact. Ah, you know, it's all, okay. it's uh, all, you know, it's all starting to make sense. <laughs> McCartney also is a, an important part in your story with the biographies as well, isn't it? 65, so actually the Beatles already a kind of global phenomenon. Oh, God, yeah. But mm. in a kind of pop rock sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Then they come to London. So McCartney's now getting involved in what would become the counterculture. And in yeah. fact, ended up paying for quite a bit of it as well, he didn't did. he? So, well, in 65, you also introduced um, Paul McCartney to Hash Brownies, I hope. Oh, yes. Well, it wasn't me, you see. Ah. So it was my wife. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and she um, she was making um, Alice B. Toklas's famous recipe for Hash Brownies. Happened to mention it to Paul one day that uh, she'd knocked up a batch of these. A couple of days later, I came home from Better Books and uh, to find Paul um, sitting on the you know, the draining board in the kitchen, you know, uh, with, with Sue. I, I don't think Sue had ever been so uh, sorry to see me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, th- so that's where he had his first hash brownies. Right, so if you uh, want to know, uh, listeners, how the Beatles moved from Love Me Do to the White Album, <laughs> you can blame Miles and his wife. By living in the Asher household, Paul was introduced to a mm. different lifestyle altogether right. from than, right. than his previous one in Liverpool because yeah. uh, the Ashers were upper middle class very mm. professional family. Um, Margaret Asher taught uh, music at the, I forget which college, Royal College of Music, or one of those. Um, she taught George Martin, in fact, uh, you know, who became the Beatles producer. Right. And she taught Paul how to play right. the recorder, you know, so on the Fool on the Hill, that's that's him oh. playing that. Uh, Is that right? That she had taught him how to do. Right. And then Jane, of course, was a child star and had been in films and television mm. ever since she was about seven or eight. And so was Peter. And the whole family, in fact, were engaged in media. The, the younger sister also lived there. And Claire was in a, a, a daily soap opera on BBC called Mrs Dale's Diary. Peter was in Jennings at school. Public schoolboy. Started off as Jennings, and then I think he was switched to somebody else. Derbyshire, I think, isn't it? <laughs> uh, for the rest of the series, which went on for years. Right. For and Paul McCartney, it was, a, it, it was a kind of entree into a different kind of world, right? Absolutely. From a very working-class Liverpool background. And then there's Jane introducing him to all these Hollywood producers, right. going to premieres and stuff. So he was already moving in a very, very different circle. Mm. And of course, he was the one who chose to, to stay in London, whereas the mm. other three Beatles all went out to the stockbroker belt right. and had big mansions and mm. tried to live that kind of life, which none of them really did that successfully, really. I mean, I think Paul had a much better time staying right. in the centre of town, yeah, even yeah. though he was living in a tiny little attic room. Yeah, so they'd get chauffeur-driven in in their roles, but he was actually living it, living life in the middle of London. Yeah, well, he, he did have an Aston Martin, actually, but uh, <laughs> part round the corner in the Muse, you know. <laughs> well, when quite organically, you find yourself at the sort of centre of, you know, the so-called swinging 60s, don't you? You know, in communication and socialising and doing work... With these people, yeah. including McCartney, beat poets. Well, and through Paul, of course, I met all the others. John used to come over all the time, and mm. when I would be sorting books in the basement for our, before the shop opened, before Indica opened, mm. John would, John and Paul would be sitting at the piano, you know, writing mm. songs. I mean, looking back, I mean, it's absurd how privileged I was to see all this yeah. kind of stuff, and yeah. I didn't really, I didn't make any notes or anything. Didn't you have know. your tape recorder with you? And I did not mm. have a tape recorder with me, mm. no. <laughs> well, let's talk about Indica, because... Indica it becomes one of the hubs for the counterculture as it, as it emerges, doesn't it? And of course, for Lennon, John Lennon, becomes very significant later, doesn't it? The gallery, it was, the gallery it was. anyway. Tell us about that. So, so we opened a bookshop uh, and art gallery. The gallery was in the basement and, and basically a white cube, which is what you need for an art gallery. But a bookshop is always messy. There's always stuff everywhere, big piles of books and magazines. I remember John Lennon coming in one day, for instance, and um, we had an old busted settee in the middle of the of the room. And um, I gave him a copy of Tim Leary's book, The Psychedelic Experience. Right. And of course, he just opened it more or less at random and it just said, you know, turn off your mind, you know, <gasps> drift upstream. And so <laughs> and he said, oh, I love this, you know. <laughs> he got quite a lot of stuff out of that. Then we decided to, to open a separate bookshop 
uh, over on Southampton Row. They leave the gallery in mm. Mason's Yard just off Piccadilly and moved most of the art upstairs into the ground floor. And it was on the ground floor of Indica Gallery that um, Yoko Ono had her first European show. It may have even been her first gallery show, I'm not mm. sure, because she used to do any studio stuff in, in New York. And I was in touch with her in Metabooks days because I used to buy copies of Grapefruit from her, which she, she had self-published. And, and she was also a member of the Fluxus group, and I used, right. to, used to sell all of their things. So then when, when Gustav Metzger organized the Destruction in Arts Symposium, 66, I suppose, he brought her over to, to take part. So I was one of the people she looked up just because I'd, I'd been corresponding with her and I'd obviously had contacts in the kind of area that she worked in. I introduced her to John, and who ran the gallery, John Dunbar. John was very flexible. Uh, I mean, these days, if you put on a show, you have to plan it like two years ahead or something. But he could get one on in, in two months. And um, so we, uh, she arranged to have her show. When we were hanging the show, John Lennon showed up, a chauffeur-driven mini, you know. <laughs> he, he only dropped by, really, to take drugs with, with John Dunbar. Cause, you know, they, Drug they buddies. Were, like most of these rock and roll bands, maybe, I don't know whether it's changed, but in those days... You couldn't be friends with all of them. You, each one had their own entourage. And I was very much part of Paul's circle, but, but John Dunbar was very much part of, of John Lennon's circle. I mean, we, we saw each other, went to clubs and stuff together, but it, that's kind of how it panned out. John Lennon and John Dunbar were having a good time, and John got Yoko to show Lennon around the show. And at one point, he had to climb up a stepladder and look through a magnifying glass, which was hanging from a chain, to read a little label stuck on the ceiling. I mean, you can imagine these days, you know, health and safety, safety. allowing that one. Uh, <laughs> anyway, John climbed up and, and he thought it would say fuck off or something, but mm. it didn't. It just said yes. And he was very pleased with that. They kind of clicked, but not uh, in a sexual way. I mean, I mean, she pretty much stalked him, to be quite honest, for two years before uh, before they finally got together. But that was the, the meeting and that's the one that they always refer to, uh, um, both of them in interviews. At the beginning of a very long story, right? Mm. A very long story, yes, yes. And we also showed other people, the Boyle family, who, mm -hmm. Lillian Lynn, Lillian Lynn and people like that. But John was very pleased to say that he never actually had a painting on the wall uh, throughout the whole history of Indica. It was, it was always op art or some kind of uh, installations. But two of the Beatles in already there, and we should mention your, your old friend, long-lamented uh, John Hopkins. Just after the Albert Hall reading, Hoppy and I were discussing this sort of constituency and how they had no no vehicle for news or information that were of interest to them. So we'd seen the Village Voice, of course, and then the East Village Other began in New York. And uh, because of my contacts with Ed Saunders and the Fugs and everybody, I quickly became their London correspondent. <clears throat> so I then immediately got all of the underground press from all over the America. And we thought, well, we should do one, an underground paper in London. We had a, a, a number of meetings and people came up with different ideas and how to finance it. And there was a woman called Bobo Lejeune, I remember, who um, was apparently a, a society hostess in New York. She was living in Shepherd Market. It's in the posh part of town. Very yeah, posh part yeah. of town, just by the Hilton Hotel, yeah. just off Hyde Park. We had a meeting. Lots of silly ideas were being made about what to call it. And she just stamped across the room and just said, let's call it it. It. And, yes, right. and right. because it could stand for all kinds of different things, mm. and um, we, and then, so initially, um, and so we did. We called it it, but we also said International Times, and then the Times, of course, immediately mm. came on to us a great load of lawyers and said, "You can't use International Times." You sort of reverse engineered the word it and thought, mm. hmm, "What could that stand for?" Yeah. International Times, great. And then what the the, the Times of London so can't get more establishment than that. They, they got yeah, oh, yeah, we're really going to get mixed up. Sure, yeah, but, but anyway. Yeah. This is a sidebar about some of the people that Miles have mentioned, who, alas, are now dead, many of whom I would have loved to interview for this show. Barbara Rubin was an American filmmaker and performance artist, best known for her landmark 1963 underground film, Christmas on Earth, originally titled Cox and Cunts. It featured several painted and masked performers engaging in a variety of gay and straight sexual acts. The film's two separate black and white reels projected simultaneously, one inside the other with colour filters placed on the projector lens and originally an ad hoc soundtrack. Due to its explicit nature, the New York City police tried to suppress the film for a time during the mid-60s. Barbara routinely carried around her one copy with her for safekeeping. Alan Ginsberg was so impressed by the film, he initiated an affair with her after seeing it for the first time. 
Pete Brown was an English performance poet, lyricist and singer, best known for his collaborations with Cream, Eric Clapton and Graham Bond. He also wrote film scripts and formed a film production company. A friend of Sid Barrett. Jeff Nuttall, another poet, performer, author, actor, teacher, painter, sculptor, jazz musician, anarchist and social commenter. Wow, that's a lot. A key part of the British 1960s counterculture, who staged some of those early happenings at Better Books. And formed the People Show in 1966, one of the first and long-lasting performance art groups my friend David worked there for many years. He also wrote Bomb Culture, a personal account of the birth of the alternative society. Michael Horowitz died sadly just a couple of years ago in 2021. Fled to this country from Germany, one of the Jewish families fleeing the Holocaust. A poet, editor, visual artist and translator. Very important part of the beat scene in the UK. Alexander Trocky, a Scottish novelist who wrote many books, often under pen names, some pornographic novels. Um, he and his friends also published Samuel Beckett and Jean Genet. His novel Cain's Book was something of a sensation, being an honest study of heroin addiction with descriptions of sex and drug use. Banned in Britain. He was often deep in the throes of heroin addiction himself, even failed to turn up at the launch party for Cain's Book. His wife, Lynn, prostituted herself on the streets of the Lower East Side to keep their habit going. He injected himself on camera during a live television debate on drug abuse. In the late 50s, he lived in Venice, California, then centre of the Southern California beat scene, and hung out with Leonard Cohen. Hoppy Hopkins, a very close friend of Miles, uh, who died in 2015. British photographer, journalist, researcher and activist. Probably one of the best known underground figures of swinging London in the 60s. Photographed many of the musicians of the day, including the Beatles and the Stones. Also recorded the seedy side of London uh, that Miles mentioned earlier on. With photographs of tattoo parlours, cafes, prostitutes and fetishists in Soho. He also set up the London Free School in Nottingham with various others served a prison for cannabis possession in 1967, described by a judge as a pest to society. And a free hoppy movement sprang up, and as a consequence of which, there was a campaign for the liberalisation of the laws on cannabis, with a letter published in The Times, a full-page ad that described the existing law as immoral in principle and workable in practice. How right that remains signed by all sorts of people, including Francis Crick, Jonathan Miller, the Beatles. Paul McCartney, uh, initially clandestinely, actually arranged the funding for that advertisement as a tribute to Hoppy at the instigation of Miles. Miles also mentioned Sue, his first wife, who's an Anglo-American counterculture activist and restaurateur. She met Miles on the annual C&D march from Aldermaston, and as Miles mentioned, they had to elope to Scotland to get married as her parents refused to accept the match. Co-founded Indica Gallery and IT, she started her cooking career by running the Cafe at the Arts Lab, uh, another prominent London restaurant such as Food for Thought and Les Cargo, and through the 80s became famous for her food. We naively thought, well, we, we will cover everything that people of our generation was interested in. And so that included interviews with a lot of avant-garde composers, rock and roll stuff. Artists. Um, uh, but it also included the c- current price of pot, you know, and how much uh, hash was going for in Amsterdam and stuff. Which and is... obviously what I love about it, <laughs> no, is I love the small ads, classifieds, you know. They, they give a sort of picture of the time, the op-eds and the, and the articles and the things that gives a big picture of the time but it's, it's in the small ads that yes. sort of you know people advertising for pads and pads a groovy chick seeks pad in central london that's it and, you know, oh, and, no, and it's all, a snapshot and, of the era it's a snapshot. and the police of course read that very carefully did the, they there was some poor oh. potter down in cornwall <laughs> advertised a pug mill which is the, the machine that you used to um, you, you shove clay into it and turn a handle and the clay comes out compressed or something. And <laughs> he was raided. They thought they thought it was a one of those words that meant something else. Because he was a potter. It obviously yeah, had something yeah. to do with pot. Pot, pot. <laughs> pot. <laughs> In its run, the the British Underground Press probably certainly with Oz and friends. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of one of the of the triumvirate, wasn't it? Of you know. Yes, yeah, so it actually came first in yeah. October '66, and then. I think Oz began quite shortly afterwards, in about mm. March or something of 67. Mm. And um, Friends didn't start until December 69. I mean, it was, that was a second generation, really. 
but Oz and uh, and IT were were like the, the Sunday papers, really. You know, the yeah, Oz the was the color section. You know, right. as, as they used to have in those days, and uh, and we were the newspaper. And Oz came out monthly, or sometimes bi-monthly, maybe mm. every two months. So they dealt do, do much more in articles, think pieces, shall we say? Although you couldn't always read them because. Uh, Sometimes they'd be printed in green on red, and then <laughs> you just wear three D glasses that it's read them. Not even with chemical enhancement could you read that. Whereas we came out fortnightly and right. um, and covered much more immediate mm. news, but we didn't have any reporters or anything. Nobody got mm. paid anything except the basic staff. I mean, I never got paid at all for the first mm. four years. It wasn't until much later. Um, International Times started in the basement of Indica in, uh, and then we were there until we got raided the first time and the police took away everything I mean even the phone books uh, everybody's um, address book uh, every piece of paper in the entire place With the intention of what? Just shutting uh, you down? or Shutting I mean, you down basically And what was the pre- pretext? Obscenity Apparently we'd used the word motherfucker uh, mm. and somebody had objected They kept everything for almost three months right, so and then didn't... they just brought a van up and threw everything downstairs, you know. I mean, it was. It, it, had this happened in East Europe, Eastern Europe, you know, it would have been all over the goddamn papers, you know, mm. of, of how horrible these. But because it was the Met doing it, you know, um, no problem. You think they've been gunning for you for a while, and it was like it was yeah. a kind of statement or something, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so you guys had to move, right? The bookshop remained as usual. They took away naked lounge and everything, and came back with a big grubby police fingerprints all over it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the paper moved. Yeah, we moved to twenty-two better. Street was the first one, and then after that to Endor Street, and later on the Harry Krishnas had the ground floor. In fact, and when oh. IT was just upstairs, and then when that kind of fell through for a you know, very complicated set of <laughs> problems, and then to what used to be known as Murder Alley in in uh, in Soho, in, which is Wardour Mews, and then I moved to New York April, I think, of 1970. There's an awful lot going on in countercultural London, as there was in other major cities in the UK and certainly in, in the US and around Europe as well, right? Literary stuff, musical stuff, obviously drugs was part of it, new ways of thinking and spinning around you, isn't it? And yeah. In terms of lifestyle, you were married with Sue, right, yeah. your wife. Well, there's this famous saying about the 60s, you know, if you can remember it, you weren't there. But there's another saying, which is, you didn't have to remember it because Miles wrote it all down. <laughs> well, only wrote you it down later. Always, you were an observer even then, though, weren't you? I mean, d- how much did you get involved? Like, were you, were you t- also taking acid? And, and There was no time. There was no time, right. No, I did visit Tim Leary in mm. Millbrook mm. in 67 mm. and mm. Uh, later on in... Berkeley and other places he lived and he became a bit of a friend but there was no time for any of that I mean mm. I was I was overextended in a stupid way because mm. it's and, and it was not like there was, there was any money in any of it most of right. the things I was doing I wasn't getting paid for at all I just really did have a rather naive belief that we could change society because Britain in those days was such a monoculture just one way of life and if you deviated from it even slightly they, they came down on you like a ton of bricks I mean on Sunday morning for instance they would chain up the swings in the park so children couldn't even have a swing because you're supposed to go to church on Sundays and all of that shit and, and businessmen really did wear bowler hats and carry foiled umbrellas and <laughs> no sex please be yeah. British that, that, was, that was the British way of life and um, they, they didn't like it particularly the police the police loved the status quo to be exactly as it was mm-hmm. and uh, they were on the take you know the porn squad uh, the obscene publication squad in the end in the corruption trials in the early 70s they had to disband the entire thing and they've never reformed it this area in particular which you know Soho yeah. so at that time as you pointed out earlier you know was, was sort of vi- the vice district mm. but it was run by the vice squad effectively it was wasn't it, it was know, they and, wrote uh, some of the books the dirty books yeah. and they used to go go on holiday to, to Tara Molinas and stuff. The the head of the obscene publication squad was with the, the guy who had the most warehouses of porn around the corner here on Romilly Street. No, it was it was absolutely blatant. You got all that porn stuff going on in the kind of underworld, which the police are complicit in, and yet the underground was in the counterculture. They were desperate to squash it, weren't they? And by the way, it was a hopeless endeavour to try and get through your counterculture life in one hour, so we're not going to bother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to what you were referring to then, the countercultural feeling, because what's always of interest to me is to try and understand how young people, you, were feeling about society and about change, about transformation, about how things could be, well, mm-hmm. that kind of countercultural spirit which binded this, as you called it, this constituency together. We were the first generation to be better educated. I mean, both my parents left school at 14 
And the same applied to a lot of my friends. Their parents, you know, they'd not read any books. They didn't have many ideas. You know, they just went along with what the, the ordinary culture was about. We basically had to look around for mentors. And our mentors were everybody from the Polonius Monk and Charlie Parker and Bebop guys right through to the Beat Generation writers, Ginsberg and Burroughs and Kerouac and everybody. Uh, electronic music was very big, 12-tone and all the more experimental stuff coming out of Europe. Going right back to the 20s, and in fact, weird literature, particularly postmodern you know, and, and modernist stuff, beginning with James Joyce and mm. all of those kind mm. of people, people who uh, had been regarded as pretty edgy back in the 50s and 60s. It was like a supermarket of ideas. Mm. You know, you, you've got everything, you know, the Hells Angels on one end right through to uh, the Hare Krishnas on the other, you know, and uh, and everything in between. You could pick and choose. And that's really what it was all about. There was no overall plan. There were no leaders mm. or anything like that. Although there were quite a few alpha males in America who wanted to lead everything. But mm. there was much, very little in that way in, in Britain, actually. It was much more, here it all is, to just get right. on with it. Pick. But you had a sense, without without it being organized in any, mm. any way, theorized or kind of written up as a sort of conscious ideology, there was this feeling of being on the brink of something, mm. that something having this extraordinary potential to change things. That was a shared feeling of, of in some way, was it? Yes, because the, the whole movement was, generally speaking, not very consumerist. Mm. Much more concerned with people's human feelings and relationships with each other. And and we really did think, you know, uh, make love, not war. And, and mm. um, of course, the sexual attitudes, particularly within the underground, were what would now be regarded as quite extraordinarily liberal, really. I think that there's been a move back to much more conservative views. There was a great deal of, of sex and a belief that that this was part of a friendship, you know, mm. was to have to, to have sex with somebody. It wasn't a, a lifelong commitment. You didn't have to be married. It was just a way of expressing friendships. By no means everybody was into that. And some people were coerced into it. A mm. lot of women, I think, got badly treated. There's no question about that. But also, it was the first time that the idea of women, of women having their own sexual drive was pretty right. much allowed. You know, up until then, they, they're supposed to not to be neutral, really, just mm. uh, some kind of male plaything, in that they mm. had no sex life of their own. Whereas that was the great thing of people like Germaine Greer mm. and um, the women who, who then, in the very early 70s, started spare rib and everything. Um, they were finally asserting that the fact that, yes, you know, they, they were they were sexual human beings themselves. Germain's celebration of groupies and everything, which of course every, a lot of people misunderstand these days, but was a positive thing back then. And you um, also got, I suppose, the beginnings of gay liberation, other more political things as well going on. Oh yeah, very much so. It was pretty much cause specific. I mean, mm. you could say people were left wing, but the Labour Party, of course, approached us many, many times to try and get IT allied um, with the Labour Party, but there was just a cultural gap there. Most people would have supported them and most, pe most people voted for them. There was just no connection culturally. So on the other hand, uh, a huge number of the people that we knew were gay. I mean, obviously, it was just an accepted thing. Jack Henry Moore, who was the second editor of IT, was gay, for instance. Half the people, Ginsburg, you know, Burroughs, it was a gay scene. And don't forget, it was illegal up until 1967. Right. You had to be a bit careful. Mm. When IT was busted, I think the third time or second time, it was again small ads looking for gay partners. And this was after it had been made legal but it was legal only if you were over 21. Right. And I think the ads didn't specify that. Or I forget now. It was in court for ages. I missed most of that. Though. I was living in America by then. We covered it last time. You'd got to the end, towards the end of the 60s. You'd done all this stuff. Indicate with better put, putting on these huge events, and you were basically getting worn out, weren't you? You were the lifestyle getting to you, isn't it? And it was kind of Ginsburg, in a sense, who who sort of pulled you out of that. That's what we talked about last time. He did. Like, well, the end of '69, really. I think everybody felt like that. I think even I think it might have been McCartney in an interview mm. once. He just said, no, "Nobody had had enough sleep for years, and everybody had taken mm. too many drugs. Everyone was just completely exhausted." That's why there was a, quite a big movement to communes in the country mm. and mm. yeah, into nature and stuff mm. to try and recuperate because we were all totally worn out. I certainly was, and, and Ginsburg very kindly, uh, he didn't make up the job, the job was there, but uh, he wanted somebody to catalogue his tape archive, and he had hundreds upon hundreds of tapes of readings. At that point, I, I had already just done a whole series of uh, spoken word albums for the Beatles' experimental label called Zapple, so he knew that I knew how to edit tapes and do all that kind of thing, as well as running the bookshop and having an editorial and writing role in IT. There was all the music side of things because International Times, by its very nature, uh, wasn't sold by 
W.H. Smiths or anybody. They absolutely boycotted us. Um, so we were sold by street vendors. We would give them 100 copies. And if they didn't come back with the money, then they didn't get any more. But most of them did. You know, they would be sold to, to Holland. And then the guys who used to take them to Holland realized, you know, we could take passengers and that turned into a bus company that took uh, took hippies to, to Amsterdam every week you know <laughs> and um, all these kind of spin-offs were going on but IT itself it did get some ads but not that many it got record company ads after I started interviewing you know McCartney and Lennon and Harrison and everybody Jagger and Townsend I mean all the, everybody wanted to be in it you mean the underground figures wanted to be in it and that sort mm. of brought in some sort of advertising yes it did yeah. yeah we made sure that the staff got some money by having the UFO club and Joe Boyd and um, and Hoppy started UFO. Joe booked all the bands, and, and Hoppy did all the administration. And the entire staff of International Times worked the club. Basically, they were on the door, and they were security. They were backstage, and uh, lighting, and all that. And and that gave them a regular income. And of course, because it was an underground outfit, I mean, the, the house band was the Pink Floyd and Soft Machine and Arthur Brown. Yeah, some of those bands went on to do big things. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Proko Horam did their second ever gig at the UFO Club. Two weeks later, they were in, in the charts. The whole life seemed to be like a, an endless party going on. I mean, I, I'd come down in the morning, there'd be people sleeping on the floor. It, it was quite chaotic. Tell us about the 14 hour technical dream as well. So well, that I mean, was. That, that's the fundraiser, isn't it? Yes, for, that was for, after for. we got busted when the police took everything away. Hoppy and, and Dave Housen and um, a, few, a few other people probably took time off from IT and put on this big uh, fundraising uh, event uh, at the Alexandra Palace, which holds thousands and thousands of people. And I think we had 41 bands there. And which is so many that you couldn't have them all. Even though it ran all night, there would still be too many. So there was a band at each end, uh, and there was this strange neutral zone in the middle where they they cancelled each other out. And you'd get hippies standing there, like with a bemused look on their face, like leaning one way and then leaning the other way. <laughs> on the left ear, on the left ear, I've got Pink Floyd in my right ear. Yeah, right yeah. I've got... Well, they arrived at yeah. dawn. Uh, right. I mean, it was very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, Sid was on acid, and yeah. um, they were just beneath the big rose window in, mm-hmm. in Ali Pali, and. Uh, just as the sun came pouring through, they, they launched into interstellar overdrive, you know, mm. it was one of those great psychedelic moments. John Lennon was there, I mean, all kinds of people were there, you know, wandering around. Yoko Ono was doing an, uh, sort of... Yoko, clothes cut off by, by the mm. audience and things like that. There was somebody in an igloo that was giving people um, dried banana skins, which is supposed to make you high or something. That was a fad for about 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> it all spirals up or down for you, Mars, and I think we can leapfrog a time on the farm with Ginsburg because we covered that but, we covered I think, that. Yep. but I think when after that of course you go out to Barclay and, and live with him again and with mm-hmm. Sue in a commune and use your life in America and all sorts of other things we haven't talked about the Chelsea Hotel and then of course yes I did live in the Chelsea for a few years yeah and then your yeah. whole life as a, as a music journalist as well you know completely different era with the clash and mm. you know all that sort of stuff but I think for today Miles thanks very much for coming to the View of Lost Culture well it's always a pleasure will you come back of course <laughs> Thanks so much to Miles. A hopeless endeavour, of course, to try and squeeze his countercultural life into an hour. I'm not quite sure why I even thought that was possible. I will ask him to come back to talk about his crazy life, crazier life in some ways, in the 70s and on into the 80s. Uh, in March next year, we are curating an exhibition together about Ginsburg in London, drawn mainly from Miles's own collection of ephemera and images and sounds. But it's also going to include some very, very special guests. Top secret at the moment, but I hope to announce that very soon. He's very sweet, very funny, and I think very modest considering all the things that he's done and all those that he's known. Thank you to you for listening and to everybody who's written in with suggestions. We love it. Keep them coming. I hope to cover a lot more stuff that's been suggested in 2024. Just one show left this year. Countercultural Christmas show. I think it's going to land actually on winter solstice, which happens to be my birthday. If anybody wants to send me a birthday present, I'm very happy to receive it. I did receive a t-shirt from Ronnie Lambert, who is one of my regular correspondents. Um, <laughs> it's a very funny t-shirt. Maybe I'll take a photograph of me wearing it. Although it's huge. I don't know how big Ronnie thinks I am, but it could fit a whole countercultural happening inside it. Thanks, Ronnie. So let's finish with this real Tuesday Well song written for my guest today, Miles. 
It's called Miles. See you next time down the road and the bend for more tales from the underground and the other side. Thank you.